Okay, welcome everyone. My computer says we're on the air, so, so people are watching. <laughs> welcome everyone tonight and to those who are watching. And if you want to say you're here, you can say, indicate that in the group chat by indicating you're here. Let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the opportunity we have to meet together and to study the Gospel of John. We're thankful that <clears throat> we have the privilege of having the Word of God in our own language, easily accessible, and yet we know that gives us a greater responsibility. So help us, Father, to seek to please you by understanding and applying what we learn from Scripture. And Father, we pray that as we do so, we might grow in grace and knowledge of Christ. We might grow in our obedience and our service for you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, our memory verse, remember that? John 1, 11 and 12. So, you want to try to say it together? He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Okay? That's a good passage. Uh, it's helpful maybe for people who uh, want to know how they can become Christians. You know, it's a matter of receiving him which to receive Christ means to believe on his name. So don't forget that that's what receiving means. You know, people say, I received Christ, I received Christ. Sometimes they say, uh, Christ came into my heart and that kind of thing. That's okay, but it's not really a full description of what's necessary to become a Christian. One must receive Christ by believing in Christ, believing in who he is, and what he did, he died for your sins on the cross. That kind of, that's essential to salvation. So we're looking at week three here, and uh, we're looking. We've looked at the prologue, and we are ready for um, the public ministry of Jesus, verses 19, 119 through twelve. 50. So that's the first part of the book, the prologue, and then this first part, then chapters 13 and following are primarily Jesus' ministry to his disciples and then ultimately his arrest, trial, crucifixion, resurrection. Let's begin here with A, early belief in Judea and Jerusalem. This is 119 through 225. Say so here, after discussing the ministry of John the Baptist, our author began begins, author begins to unfold how the Son, the incarnate Word, has made God known. Uh, we will see the self-disclosure of Jesus in both his words and what he does in his deeds. So John now concentrates on the beginning of faith, or that is people being saved, initially his disciples, his, uh, we call the apostles, the twelve apostles. Uh, and so we'll, we'll see how, how these people, he'll concentrate on people who just get saved. 
you know, like John chapter 3, Nicodemus, John chapter 4, the woman at the well, and how that works, how they experience new life as children of God. So first of all, we're looking at the testimony of John now to Jesus, first but to the officials from Jerusalem, 119 through 28. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. Um, I say here, according to Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5, 18, 20 through 22, Israel was responsible to examine every prophet who came on the scene to see whether or not he was of God. And so you can see passages in the Old Testament that warn Israel about false prophets. Uh, Deuteronomy 13, a prophet who foretells by dreams appears among you, announces a sign of wonder. If the sign or wonder spoken of takes place and the prophet says, let us follow other gods, you must not listen. So even if a prophet comes and is able to do some sort of miracle or something and he says follow other gods, you don't follow that. That prophet or dreamer must be put to death. So if a prophet, you know, says follow other gods, then so Israel has to judge that. They have to determine if someone's a false prophet. Uh, 18, Deuteronomy, you may say to yourselves, how can we know that a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. So you know that way, certainly. If they make some sort of prediction and it doesn't come true, because a true prophet of God, whatever he says, will come true. So if they, if they don't come true or if they lead you astray from the Old Testament, what, you've been, what you're being taught in the law and so forth about God, then that's a false prophet. I say in the days of Jesus, this function was taken up by the Sanhedrin, which was the highest official body in Israel, had jurisdiction over internal matters from Rome itself. Rome was in control, but they left these religious matters and other matters to the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin was legitimate in what they're doing here. They're going out to see, they have a legitimate function to see if John is a true prophet. So they send a committee of priests and Levites. Remember the tribe of Levi was the priestly tribe. Uh, they didn't get a, an allotment in the land. They were to live in various cities in Israel, teach the people the law. But only the sons of Aaron were the, of the Levites were the, were the priests who, who worked in the temple, who had ceremonial functions in the temple. So they sent out this committee to see if John is really a true prophet. Uh, and so they, they question about his identity. And so John is now going to explain his position in relation to the Messiah. Verse 20, he did not fail to confess, but confess freely, I am not the Messiah. Now, remember the word Messiah and the word Christ are the same word. So sometimes the NIV will translate it Messiah, sometimes Christ. So both mean the same thing, the anointed one. It just means the anointed one. So Christos, the anointed one, Meshuach, the anointed one. But obviously to the Jews, that title, Meshuach uh, or Christos, they're thinking of the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. Now as we get further in the New Testament, the name Christ for Gentiles 
sort of loses that significance. It's not as significant to them. They think of it more as a name, Jesus Christ, like we do today. We talk about Jesus Christ. We don't think in our minds Jesus the Messiah, though he is the Messiah. It becomes later in the epistles more like a title and uh, Jesus the Christ. So here, clearly, we're talking among Jews. They're trying to determine about the Messiah. Is, are you the Messiah? And he says, I'm not. They ask him, well, uh, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no, not the prophet. <laughs> so as I say, he denied that he was the Christ, the Messiah. And so if he's not the Messiah, maybe they said, maybe he's some other end time figure, such as Elijah. The prophecy of Malachi 4.5 predicted Elijah would come at the outset of the day of the Lord. See, he, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So maybe John is Elijah, come back. So many Jews expected Elijah to come back and announce salvation and to anoint the Messiah. That's, that was what, how they kind of looked at things. And so when they asked John, you know, are you the Elijah who has returned to earth? John says, no, you know. Finally, I say here, the delegation suggests another identification. Are you the prophet? Now here they're referring to Deuteronomy 18, 15, a prediction that Moses says that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own fellow Israelites. So Moses is going to leave the scene and he says the Lord will one day raise up a prophet like me. Now this, this matter of who this prophet would be was a matter of disagreement among the Jews. Some thought it was the Messiah himself. Others thought it was Jeremiah. Uh, others thought it was uh, someone else. We know that the New Testament Christians, we looked at some of the passages and Acts and so forth, they understood correctly that Moses was talking about Christ himself. He was talking about the Messiah. So John spoke correctly when he said, no, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the prophet. I'm not Elijah. Finally, they said, verse 22, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. For his answer, John quotes Isaiah 40 verse 3 and explains his identity by telling of his mission. He was the one who was announcing the arrival of the Messiah. He says, make straight the way of the Lord. Uh, this, is a, this is a way when you, uh, to say make straight the way of the Lord. This is a way of calling upon the nation to sort of prepare itself morally and spiritually for the coming of her king. It's a, it's a metaphor that's drawn from the fact that in the ancient world, when a dignitary would be coming to a person, to a certain city or place, they would prepare the road. They would remove any obstacles, you know, make the, make the, you know, it's sort of like today they roll out the red carpet or, you know, when the president comes, they block off the freeways and, and he, you know, you just, you know, it's, he's got a straight path to wherever he wants to go and so forth. That's, the, that's what John is saying here, but he's saying prepare yourself morally and spiritually um, and so forth. Now, Isaiah 40 really has a, when he says, uh, 
make straight the way for the Lord. This is ultimately going to be fulfilled during the tribulation period. Verse 24, Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of Jordan where John was baptizing. Now, there's some debate about this exact location, but apparently it's just east of the Jordan River. Now, there's another Bethany, a more well-known Bethany, where Lazarus, you know, Lazarus in John chapter 11, uh, Mary and Martha were from Bethany. That's just very close to Jerusalem. It's just over the Mount of Olives. You can just, <laughs> I was going to say, you can just walk over there. Yeah, you try to walk over there sometime. Try to walk up the Mount of, if you ever get to Jerusalem, try to walk up the Mount of Olives. It's not, have you tried it? Have you tried it? <laughs> <laughs> <The> bus. <laughs> well, we walked down it, and it was hard enough to, it was just so steep, it was like you were going to fall over. And you, I can imagine just walking up. But this is a different Bethany. And uh, apparently this is the place here where John was baptizing. Now, in Jesus' day, this is the Jordan River. This would have been much wider and much deeper. What's happened in Israel today, Israel and Jordan are taking extremes amounts of water from the Jordan River. They're getting their water. And as the population increases, you know, more water and more water. So... The Jordan River is pretty narrow and not as deep as it used to be, you know, in, in those times because they've taken so much water uh, to use from the Jordan. And there's big debates about uh, Jordan's taken too much, Israel's taken too much. They fight about how much water and all that kind of thing. So I say here the real question on the Pharisees' mind was by what authority John was taking it upon himself to baptize. John emphasized the preparatory and symbolic nature of his ministry by explaining his baptism. John's baptism was not Christian baptism, which was not instituted until after Christ's resurrection. Baptism was not a foreign idea to the Jews. They themselves practiced something like proselyte baptism, but only on Gentiles who were considered unclean. So, do we have any more notes there? They're on the. Let me get some. Give Eula here some notes here. I mean, I mean, yeah, Eula some notes here, because I see she doesn't have any. My my stone ones came in. Thanks. Um, so, uh, if you're a Gentile in Jesus' day, and you want to convert to Judaism. Uh, if you're a male, say, you have to be, you have to have four things. You have to be taught by a rabbi, taught by a teacher or something about Judaism. You have to be circumcised, and this prevented a lot of, <laughs> a lot of adult people from, you know, becoming Jews just like that. People like Cornelius and so forth, they're what's called God-fearers. They're people who believed in the God of Judaism, but they didn't uh, convert fully. Uh, they didn't really fully become Jews. You had to be circumcised, you had to be taught, you had to be immersed or baptized, and you had to offer a sacrifice in the temple. And that's what was necessary to be a, to be a con convert 
to Judaism. Um, so in Judaism, there were a lot of ceremonial washings. This is what's called a mikvah. And what it is, is just, you know, something carved out of the ground or concrete or stone. And uh, this is in Jerusalem near Robinson's Arch, if you ever go there. It's in the Temple Mount area, Temple area around the temple. And uh, what you did is you walked down these steps. You kind of walked down one side and walked up the other side. You immersed yourself in water. This is kind of what it looks like this way. So these were filled with water. And there's m many, many of these around just the temple area. If you go to the temple area now, they're discovering, but they're all throughout the land of Israel. There are these places, you know, we might think of them as baptismal pools, but they're just mikvahs, places to immerse yourself because you were unclean. You did something, but if you want to go into the temple, you almost have to go into one of these mikvahs and, and become clean, and then you can go into the temple mount and do whatever you want to do there and so forth. So uh, they ask him about, you know, why are you baptizing? You know, what, uh, what's going on here? Uh, now, John's baptism is different from this Jewish baptism or immersion because of its purposes and its subjects. Uh, um, this baptism... Um, um, this, this baptism didn't bring one into Judaism or anything like that. Uh, um, that's what this Jewish baptism did. Uh, proselyte baptism was self-immersed, self-administered. Self you walked down yourself and you immersed yourself and walked back out. But John was John the baptizer. John the Baptist means John the baptizers. So he baptized people. He actually did it like we do, <laughs> in a sense, probably. He actually immersed people uh, and so forth. So John baptized. Obviously, he had authority. God told him to do this and so forth. But John's baptism was a preparatory baptism. It was not Christian baptism. It provided people for a testimony in this public act that they desired cleansing and they were ready to receive the Messiah. So they're identifying with John's message. They're saying, I identify with John. I, I want to be clean. I want to be forgiven. I want to receive the Messiah. But John's authority was nothing, obviously, in comparison to the Messiah. So he was aware of his subordinate position. That's why he says, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. So John felt, you know, he was unworthy for the most menial tasks that belongs to Christ. So we see, first of all, here um, in 1, um, 19, 1, 8, 19 through 28, John's testimony to the officials, and now John's testimony to the crowds. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. So on the day following the interview with the Sanhedrin delegation, John announced Jesus to be the Lamb of God. We're not told specifically whom John is addressing, 
but we should probably assume it's the general crowd that frequently gathered to hear John. Now, the incident probably occurred just as John was, I mean, just as Jesus was returning to public view following the temptation. Remember, Jesus went, was tempted, went into the wilderness. That's not mentioned by John here. So this probably happens just as Jesus is coming back now from that temptation. Um, this title, Lamb of God, he says, look the Lamb of God, he says. This title is not found anywhere else in the New Testament, though Jesus is called the Lamb in Revelation. John may have been thinking of Isaiah, Isaiah 53 with his description of the suffering servant who is led like a lamb to the slaughter. So that Isaiah 53, you know, is a messianic portion describing the Messiah. And it says he's led, led like a lamb. Another su suggestion is, you know, maybe this the Passover sacrifice ritual in which the lamb was slain, the blood was sprinkled. Anyway, the idea of sacrifice is at the heart of this expression. But the key thing here is Jesus would not only die for the Jewish people, which is what everyone would expect it around there. These were all Jews. They're looking for the Messiah to come for them. They have no conception. They couldn't conceive that somehow he would have some relation to these dirty, nasty Gentiles. That would just be inconceivable. <clears throat> but John says he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not just Jews, but Gentiles too. So this is quite an, out, uh, uh, an amazing statement. Um, so verse uh, 30 here, John uh, repeats his previous statement in verse 15. You know, a man comes after me who has surpassed me because he was before me. <clears throat> I say we should not understand verse 31. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water that he might be real to Israel to mean that John's baptism occurs at this time. What is given here is John's report of that earlier event. So Jesus had already been baptized by John. This Holy Spirit had come down and that gave John the recognition. Oh, this is the Messiah. John's baptizing a bunch of people, you know. But when he baptizes Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes down upon Jesus. And that's the sign that John's been giving, been given, hey, this is the Messiah, you know. And so, uh, so John did not really know Jesus was the Messiah until he baptized him. And he's looking back at that now and he's saying, hey, here's the Lamb of God. You know, here's the Messiah coming to, these, to this crowd. And he's telling them about, I didn't know him until I started baptizing. Verse 32, Then John gave this testimony, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, and I myself did not know him. But the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come and down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. So I say here, John does not say he did not know Jesus as a person, only he didn't know him as the Messiah until the baptism. Whether John and Jesus ever met prior to the baptism is not certain. Remember, we talked about that last time. They were kinsmen <clears throat> through their mothers, but, you know, it just says they were relatives, but we don't know how close they were, and we don't know 
if John saw Jesus much or before, um, the, the word there is a kind of an ambiguous statement. John is the relative, Luke 180. Uh, and John spent most of his early years in the desert region, so he wouldn't have been around that much. Um, so even if he knew something about Jesus, he didn't know, he didn't have any divine indication that he was the Messiah until the baptism. That was the indicator. I say here, this coming, <clears throat> this coming um, of the Spirit on Jesus was his anointing as the rightful king. Also, the servant of the Lord would also have a special anointing of the Spirit. This theocratic anointing would remain on Jesus, unlike a king like Saul. Um, so, um, Isaiah 11, uh, a stump, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. So the prediction about the Messiah would be he would have this spiritual anointing, this special anointing, what we often call the theocratic anointing. Um, Isaiah 42.1, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Um, so, um, so don't confuse this anointing with the Holy Spirit who indwells us when we are saved. Everybody who has ever been saved is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now that's not what I was taught when I was first saved. In dispensationalism, we were, there was a position that held that Old Testament saints were not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But that's pretty impossible because the Holy Spirit regenerates us. He's the one who gives us spiritual life. And to be regenerated, you must have the Holy Spirit. So what's like David talking about when he says, you know, in the Psalm 5111, Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit from me, which I could add, like you did Saul. What Saul had upon him was this anointing as the king, this special spirit that came upon Saul and came upon the kings of Israel like David and so forth to enable them to do their task. That's true about in the Old Testament about people who built the tabernacle, the spirit of the Lord came upon them, gave them special abilities and so forth. So what we're talking about here is this theocratic, this anointing as king that came upon these kings of Israel to allow them to do their, their ministry. And uh, that's what we're talking about here, this, this anointing. This was an anointing as king. John also declared that Jesus is one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I take this reference, I say, to what took place on Pentecost with the birth of the church as Jesus promised in Acts 1.5. Remember, Jesus says in Acts 1.5, Pastor Ken just preached on that, you know, uh, John baptizes with water. He tells the disciples, you know, John baptizes with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days, just a few days, 10 days from now, 10 more days, 40. He said that 40 days after his resurrection, 10 days later, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes uh, at Pentecost. 
I say here in verse 34, we read that John concludes his witness to Jesus by testifying he's the God's chosen one. This may be a direct reference to Isaiah 42.1 where God pour, uh, promises to pour his spirit on his chosen one. I read that already. Uh, I will, my chosen one in whom I delight, I will put my spirit on him. Possibly that's, what going, that's what's going on here. So that's, uh, that's uh, his, uh, John's testimony there. Now we see verses 35 and 36, John's testimony to two disciples. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. So I say the next day, John sees uh, Jesus and identifies him as the Lamb of God, but this time, two of John's followers his disciples are with him. From verse 40, we learn that one of the, these disciples was Andrew. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John said and who had followed Jesus. Later on in verse 40, we'll read that. It's likely that the unnamed one is John, the writer of the gospel. Uh, so John never, remember, names himself in this gospel though we know from the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he's one of the most prominent of the apostles, along with uh, you know, Peter and James. There's John and Andrew. So if you look at the other list of the apostles, look at the list of the apostles as they're listed, John's always grouped with the first four. Andrew, Peter, James, and John are always four. So it's very likely that uh, these four were the first four, and John is probably the one we're talking about, two of his disciples. One of them we know is Andrew, the other is not named, but probably John. Now, then we see the response of some disciples, verses 37 through 52, Jesus recognized as teacher. Verses 37 through 39, when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. That's probably Andrew and John. That is Andrew, but then John. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you going? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. See, so we're not told that John the Baptist told his followers to attach themselves to the one he identified as the Messiah, but in light of John's ministry as pointing to him, it's not surprising that these men did just that. They call him rabbi, which John translates for us by the Greek word teacher, rabbi, which means teacher. Now, at this time, the term rabbi was just a term that was used to designate someone who, who was recognized, sort of known to be a teacher. Uh, but eventually that word took on official status like it is today. You know, rabbis are officially ordained uh, ministers in Jew Jewish churches, Orthodox, Reform, so forth, churches. Um, so then it was simply a title applied to res as a respect. And so these two disciples, uh, apparently Andrew and John, are very impressed and so they want to spend the rest of the day with him to learn what's going on. Uh, Nicodemus calls Jesus rabbi, remember in chapter 3, verse 2 also. Jesus recognized as Messiah. Andrew, Simon's Peter, Simon Peter's brother, 
was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. So those two that spent the day with him, we know one was Andrew, probably the other John. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are the son of John. you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Even though Peter has not been introduced as yet, Andrew is presented as Simon Peter's brother since Peter was to become one of the most well-known apostles. So in other words, you're reading this for the first time and it says Andrew, Simon Peter's brother and you don't, well, who's Simon Peter? Well, the truth is most people would know, <laughs> you know, who Simon Peter was as they read this story. Now, if you're reading it for the first time, as you don't know anything about it, you, you just have this guy introduced. But most people would know who he was, and they'll shortly, shortly find out, obviously. After spending a number of hours with Jesus, Andrew went at once to share the news with his brother and succeeded in bringing him to meet Jesus. Um, so even though the understanding and the conception that these first disciples had of Jesus would have grown over the years, obviously. Uh, here they found enough at their very first meeting uh, to satisfy themselves that this one, this Jesus, really is the Messiah. They, they, they became convinced. Andrew became convinced. He recognized he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And so, and Andrew becomes like an example of, you know, a long line of people who, you know, if you find Jesus, you tend to tell first your family and friends. And that's, you know, that's really the most effective witness is to uh, tell people that you know <laughs> the gospel. Uh, I was raised in a day and age when we went cold calling all the time, <laughs> knocking on doors. And I've knocked on a lot of doors <laughs> in my lifetime. But I have to admit, it, it wasn't tremendously successful. You know, it, uh, it's just hard to knock on some, well, I, you, you probably shot today if you knocked on somebody's door. But, but you know, it used to be, at least down south, you could, <clears throat> you could go and knock on people's doors and talk to them. Sometimes they'd let you come in, you could talk. You know, it was kind of successful. But I remember when I was in inner city, <clears throat> Dr. McCabe and I used to go out calling on Thursday night, you know. But, you know, in the later days, it got to be so countercultural. I remember once we went to this house in Melvindale, and there was this guy who had chains around him like this, you know, and, you know, he looked like he was in the Hell's Angels, you know, and there were beer bottles lined up all along, the whiskey bottles lined up all along the porch, you know, and here we are, you know, with our suits on. <laughs> it was tough, you know. It was tough. <laughs> So, you know, the best method is, you know, to talk to your friends, people you know, you have some acquaintance with. That's, you have a much better chance of, of them hearing, you know. It's, it's good to, you know, to talk to people you don't know, but it's, it's hard, you know, because today people are very wary, unfortunately, of any kind of, they don't know what you're, you're trying to sell them something or whatever, you know. It's a tough, tough thing. So that's why we have like that discovering God hour, the, 
you know, the theory behind that is to uh, try to invite people in a non-threatening manner. There's no music. There's no nothing. It's just you come and you listen. You know, you're not you're not expected to do anything. You don't have to you don't have to do anything. You know, and uh, so that's the idea. People you try to invite people to come who might have some interest and they can hear the truth without in a kind of a non-threatening situation. Yes. Ask a question. Yes. <clears throat> what if a person is um, a devout Muslim? Yeah. And um, but you have a um, a close relationship with that person, and they ask you to pray for them. Would it be okay to invite them to a Christian? Church? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, sure. Plenty fine. It's the best way to do it. I mean, that's. If you can get them to come, that's the best way because, you know, it's the Word of God that ultimately is going to make a difference. That's what God's going to use. So if they hear the Word, hear it, God can use that. Yeah. It's wonderful you get them to come. It's a great thing. It's the best way to do it. So, uh, um, I say, uh, we said here that uh, Jesus says, uh, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated as Peter. I say here, when Peter is brought to the Lord, he gives him a, a new Aramaic name. So in the, remember in the New Testament age, sort of the universal language throughout the empire is Greek. Now this is the Roman Empire, but the problem is that Alexander the Great conquered the world in the fourth century and the Greeks kind of ruled everything until the Romans took over and they ruled in Palestine. The Greeks controlled Palestine, Greek culture, Greek language until about, you know, the first, first century BC, late. So most people spoke Greek uh, at first. So even in, even in Rome, in Paul's day, more people spoke Greek than Latin. Even that's the capital of Rome. More people spoke Greek than Latin. So Latin, Greek was just a universal language. But of course, the Jews themselves, they spoke Hebrew. But they also picked up another language that's very close to Hebrew, especially when they went into Babylonian captivity. They picked up kind of a universal language there. So before Greek was the universal language in the ancient world, there was another language called Aramaic by the, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. They, they used Aramaic language. Now, it's very similar to Hebrew, and so they picked up Aramaic. So when they came back, the Jews came back, they tended to speak Aramaic a lot. That was probably their main language. It's very similar to Hebrew, but it's slightly different. And so um, he gives them this name Cephas, which is the Aramaic, which if you translate in the Greek is Petros or Peter. So you'll see sometimes Cephas is used, you know, and then sometimes Peter or Petros is used. So this is what Peter will become ultimately. This is what the Lord will make out of him. He's not a rock right now, you know, but he will become. You know, he's the guy who gets up on the day of Pentecost and preaches that first sermon and so forth. Becomes sort of the leader of the apostles. See here, Jesus recognized as the prophesied one. Um, the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. 
So remember our map there. Um, you can see uh, Judea is down here. This is all one province here, Samaria, Judea, but this is all one Roman province, you know, governed by uh, a Roman governor. It says Archelaus, but in Jesus' day, it's a Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And then you've got Galilee here and Perea, which is run by one of Herod's sons, Herod Antipas, and so forth. Um, and then you've got Herod Philip up here. So Galilee, Jesus has a lot of interaction, remember, with Antipas, Herod Antipas. He calls him that fox. So Jesus is moving up here now after his baptism. He's kind of coming up to uh, Galilee, which is, tends to be more of a Gentile area. Uh, a lot of Gentiles there in Galilee, but Jews also. So the next day, they decide to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Uh, Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? <laughs> he says, Nazareth? Come on, man, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? <laughs> Nathaniel asks, come and see, said Philip. So uh, here's a blow-up map of the Sea of Galilee, and you can see Bethsaida there, right here along the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is about 12 and a half miles this way, seven and a half miles this way. And it's down below. There's kind of mountains all around and it's down and there's no air down there and it's hot. <laughs> Unfortunately, we were there in July. Don't go there in July. <laughs> You'll die from the heat. It was hot. But there's Bethsaida. We'll be talking about Nazareth. We're talking about Cana here. You know, Cana in John chapter two here. And Capernaum. Here, you know, but when you go to when you go there, if you take a trip, you'll go to these Bethsaida, Capernaum, Tiberias, which is a kind of a major city today. You don't, and you'll, you'll go to those places. So uh, I say here, Bethsaida was near the Sea of Galilee, just east of where the Jordan River enters the lake. So you can see that line there. The Jordan River is just to the west of Bethsaida. Um, Nathaniel is most likely the same personal name of the one called Bartholomew in the Synoptics. Um, and you remember, I don't know if you remember, but when uh, Pastor Ken was reading off the names of the apostles there, <laughs> and he, instead of reading... Uh, um, Nathaniel, the text said Nathaniel, he read Bartholomew. I don't know if you remember, picked that up on that because he wanted to tell you that Nathaniel's probably the same guy as Bartholomew in the Synoptics. So he, they're just names for the same person. So Bartholomew is simply means, it means um, in Aramaic, it means son of uh, Thamalius. Uh, it's like Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah. Bar is 
means son of in Aramaic, son of Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah. This is like Bartholomew, son of Thamalius. So this is just a way of identifying him, identifying Nathaniel. So they're really the same person here. If you look at the list of the 12 apostles, you always have Bartholomew there in the synoptics next to Philip. And you notice here, finding Philip, he said to him, and so forth, Philip found Nathanael. Well, in the, in the Gospels, the other Gospels, it's Philip and Bartholomew. <clears throat> so Andrew and Peter may have originally been from Bethsaida and, and later moved to Capernaum, as we'll see. So um, I say here, by identifying Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, Philip was merely telling what he knew at the time. That's what he knew about him. It was the normal way to identify a person in that name, the name of the village and the name of the father. A father. Now, it's doubtful at this point that Jesus would have explained his virgin birth to the disciples. This is very early on, you know. They know he's the Messiah, but they just know him as, you know, he's from Nazareth, he's the son of jo Joseph, you know. They, they, he, he certainly probably hasn't explained his unique birth and so forth, his virgin birth. Uh, he preferred for them to discover these things as time went on. Um, and so, as you know, legally he was the son of Joseph. But as I say here, Nathaniel is not impressed with Jesus as being from Nazareth. Uh, now, you know, he couldn't conceive of the Messiah coming from such an insignificant town. That's a town not even mentioned in the Old Testament. So how could the Messiah come from a place called Nazareth? It's not related to any messianic prom, uh, prophecies. Now, he didn't really know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem at this point, obviously. And, of course, Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2, is that prophecy about, uh, you know, Jesus being born, uh, the Messiah coming out of Bethlehem. But nevertheless, he followed his friend Philip and went to see Jesus. Then we see Jesus recognized as a son of God and king of Israel. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked Jesus. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So when Nathanael approached Jesus after being invited by Philip, our Lord astounded him by revealing that he knew his character in whom there is no deceit and could even describe the scene when Nathaniel had just where he had just been. As I say, Jesus is not saying Nathaniel is sinless, but his character was not his character was not characterized by deceit or guile. And so Nathaniel's response here shows he recognizes the supernatural character of what Jesus had just done and showed him and, and, and showed him to be, you know, the Messiah, the king, who was the Son of God. Um, so he's, he's, he's obviously aware of biblical prophecies regarding the Messiah, uh, places like Psalm 2, I didn't put that up there, but Psalm 2, this messianic psalm, uh, you know, where the Messiah is revealed, where he is the king. Uh, 
Jews in Palestine in, in, in that time referred to the Messiah as the King of Israel. So he's just a way of reckoning. You are the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. You're the Messiah. I believe it. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So what greater things are we talking about? Probably the sign miracles recorded in the gospel beginning in chapter 2. So beginning in chapter 2, we have a series of miracles, sometimes called sign miracles because they're signs or indicators of something. Starts in chapter 2 with the turning of the water into wine. Now, Jesus, uh, you know, has this image. He says, you'll see heaven open and angels ascending and descending. This is probably taken from the incident of Jacob and his ladder. Remember Genesis chapter 28 where Jacob is sleeping on this rock and he has this dream and he sees these angels going and coming and so forth uh, in that dream. And so Jacob was sort of transformed by that dream, you know. Uh, he's growing in his faith. He's sort of transformed. He, 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 makes, he, he names that place Bethel, the house of God and so forth. Uh, and so here's Nathaniel. Jesus is drawing sort of this comparison. Here's Jacob, a man who was pretty deceitful, you know, until he became Israel. And here's Nathaniel, a man in whom there is no deceit. So he's drawing this comparison between the two. And he's using that to explain that Jacob saw some stuff. <clears throat> he saw heaven open and these angels. But you're going to see greater things than that. You're going to see... God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, which I think is a way of saying, in my ministry, you know, this is going to be a revelation of God to you. You're going to see God do things. You're going to see a revelation. Jacob saw some things, but you're going to see some things on the Son of Man. Now, I mentioned here the title, Son of Man, uh, has its background in the Son of Man figure in Daniel 7.13, who is granted universal and regal authority. Remember, Daniel has this vision, and he says, In my night, vision at night, I looked, and there was before me one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. <clears throat> he approached the Ancient of Days, that's God, God the Father, and was led into His presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So Jesus picks up that term from Daniel chapter 7 and uses it as the favorite way to designate himself. When he refers to himself, most often he says, I am the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man. Um, I say here the title does not emphasize Jesus' humanity. Now, that's kind of a common mistake. The Son of God, he's the Son of God, he's the Son of Man. Well, Son of Man is humanity, Son of God is his deity. That's just not true at all. It recognizes the Son of Man is his heavenly origin and divine authority. Jesus seems to have used this title for his Messiahship so he could invest it with the meaning he wished. So here's Jesus, he's coming. 
there's a big problem. The Jews are looking for a Messiah who's going to come and kick out these Romans and set up his kingdom right now. But we know that's not Jesus' mission right now. Yes, one day he will set up his kingdom and he will rule and reign for a thousand years, but that's not the mission right now. Now it's the Isaiah 53 thing. There's the problem. So he wants to use a title that he can invest with his own meaning. He can explain, here's what the Son of Man is like. Here's what he's doing. Here's what his mission is. His mission now is to die, be this sacrifice for sins and so forth. So he uses that title that is taken from the Old Testament uh, that describes this king, the Messiah king who's going to come and uses that particular title. Well, let's look at the marriage at Cana. This is a chart I got from the uh, ESV. It's the first week of Jesus' ministry. And so we see now we're at day seven. So all those events we looked at, day one, day five, now we're at about day seven probably, the wedding at Cana. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. I see here on the third day from the exchange between Jesus and Nathanael, Jesus and his new disciples, Andrew, Simon, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and John, probably, arrived in Cana, a village not far from Nazareth. Remember, there's Cana off to the left. Remember, I showed it to you before in Galilee. Uh, a village not far from Nazareth. Jesus' home there at that time. Uh, it was the home of Nathaniel. A marriage celebration was being held, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, was one of those present. Apparently, she was a relative, we assume, or had some responsibility for the proceedings. We don't know exactly why she and Jesus were invited. Whatever reason, she takes this initiative to approach Jesus about a problem, and then she instructs the servants. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, we have no more wine. Jesus says, Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. So I say here, a social embarrassment is about to take place at this marriage due to a short supply of wine. A wedding celebration could last as long as a week and a financial responsibility to lay with the groom. It would be a terrible embarrassment to run out of supplies. To Mary's statement with its implied request, they have no more wine, Jesus replied, Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Now, what about this form of address, woman? Uh, this is not exactly comparable to the way we might use it. Hey, woman. <laughs> it's, not, it's not that. <laughs> This, this, is, this is a courteous, this is a courteous uh, uh, address. It's a courteous address. Um, um, but it's not normally an endearing term, you know. 
Some have suggested it's something like ma'am. You know, you might say ma'am. It's courteous, but, you know, uh, it's not like honey <laughs> or something, you know. It's, uh, it's not like mom or something like that, you know. So it's not that. Uh, it's not the way a son would normally address his mother. So it's, it, it's indicating a kind of a change in their relationship. There's something different here going on. Now, I say here, with his response, why do you involve me? Jesus is apparently courteously rebuking his mother in order to declare his utter freedom from any kind of human advice, agenda, or manipulation. He's embarked on his ministry, and his only concern is his father's will. It's, it's, you know, it's hard to know exactly what to make of this, but you know, the language is pretty clear. It's somewhat of a kind of a, you know, a little bit of a rebuke. He's saying to his mother, you know, you've got to give up any maternal prerogatives to approach me as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You don't have any really inside track. So this is the beginning of a new relationship with his mom. This is, this is something different has happened. I say the reason Jesus gives for the distance he maintains between his mother and himself must be viewed in light of the cross. My hour has not yet come. The hour of Christ is used elsewhere by John to refer to his time of his suffering and death. Now, I don't know what's going on here. Mary may have been hoping that Jesus would sort of reveal himself. She knew who he was, all right? <laughs> She's known. She may have been hoping that he would just reveal himself as the Messiah, you know? just like Jews sort of expected the Messiah to come on the scene and just declare himself openly. But um, Jesus knew that to do that would not accomplish what Mary hoped. It, 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 it wouldn't really come until Calvary and the resurrection. That was God's plan. We're not going to really understand who he is until he dies on the cross, until he's raised from the dead. That's going to be the demonstration of who he is. So his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. In saying to the servants, do whatever he tells, Jesus' mother takes no offense at his general rebuke, uh, but exemplifies the best kind of persevering faith. So even though she's maybe slightly rebuked here, she displays faith that's perfectly content to just let the matter rest in Jesus' hand. Um, she doesn't get mad as a mother. She, she responds as a believer. Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. And so her faith is rewarded here, as we see in verses 6 through 10. Nearby stood six water, stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. So I say here, these water jars, we, we think were the jars commonly used for ritual purification, large jars of water that they kept 
for purification purposes as Jews. This master of the banquet is probably the chief steward or head waiter in charge of the banquet and so forth. So he says, you know, usually people um, bring, out the, uh, bring out the choice wine uh, first and then uh, when they've had, you know, too much to drink, when they become somewhat intoxicated, then, uh, you know, you bring out the cheap stuff and they don't know the difference but you've saved the best till now, the very best. Um, so Jesus is turning water into wine and not grape juice. <laughs> huh? how, how do we know that? Well, we know it because the word oinos means wine and not grape juice. Secondly, notice what he says here. Uh, he says... Uh, he says, he says in verse 10, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. They bring out the choice wine. I understand, but... And the choice wine is intoxicating, right? The, the NIV uh -huh. says, have drunk freely. And I know that... I, I just have such a hard time with the controversy over the word wine. Well, there's no controversy over it. I can tell you there's no controversy. Now, people, people are very upset because we've had a whole movement in our country about the abolition of, of alcohol, you know, because it's become such an, a problem. Uh, if, you, if you look at the history of this, it starts in the colonies. Ministers in the, you know, in the 1800s are very concerned about men who get their paycheck. They go and drink all the, they drink it all up and women and children don't have any food for the week. Ministers become very concerned. There's, there kind of starts an, uh, a, a movement to abolish the alcohol and so forth. That kind of fades away in the Civil War. It starts up again and again and eventually we do have you know, an amendment to do that. But... Um, well, there is no word for wine that means grape juice. There is no word for grape juice. Yeah, that's all I can tell you. I mean, you, you can find people who will tell you that, but I can tell you there is no such. There, there is a wine. It's not in the New Testament. There's not. There's not a word like that. There is a word uh, trucks which is used for unfermented wine. That's true. There is a word trucks that's used for, but it's not used in the New Testament. Oinaz. Now, let me just say a few things about that. Wine will, grape juice will naturally ferment because there's, there's uh, substances, you know, fermentation. It'll, it'll naturally do it. Uh, so Christians were so concerned about that in the 19th century, a guy named Welch <laughs> invented a process of pasteurization of grape juice of wine of you know so that it wouldn't ferment and people started he did that because he's a Methodist and he, he didn't believe people should get drunk and so forth naturally and so uh, you know that we had a process of drinking grape juice without having fermentation but the truth is this stuff was now now in the New Testament it wasn't very strong it was usually watered down all kinds of literature on that all kinds of historical things where they would take and water this down uh, so it wasn't. But the advantage of, of the wine was 
it killed the bacteria. The problem in the ancient world was water could easily be contaminated. If you just leave a glass of water sitting out on your sink, if you look, if you, they'll, they'll say, <laughs> if you look on the internet, they'll say, don't drink that after a day. Don't drink that water after one day. You start getting bacteria after one day. So the advantage of that fermentation was it would kill. So they would mix their water because they didn't have, often have pure. Now we'll see, there's a, we'll see some discussion of that when we get to John, when we get to John 4. But uh, the point is, hey, I've, <laughs> it's, it's just not true that, that this water means, means uh, unfermented grape juice. It doesn't mean that. So, and, and the point is, notice what, the, notice what he says here. He says, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much. So the choice wine that Jesus makes causes people to have too much to drink. That word too much to drink means intoxicated. So people drink, bring out the choice wine, then the cheaper wine. They bring out the choice wine after, they bring out the cheaper wine after they had the choice wine, after they had too much to drink with the choice wine. So the choice wine makes them intoxicated. And that's the wine that Jesus makes. It, Why not? Why does that not make any sense? What? Is there something evil about alcohol? Is there something evil about the substance ethyl alcohol? Okay. Well, that's what makes you intoxicated. I mean, that substance is not evil in itself. It's in Croft medicine. It's used in all kinds of things. Yes. It just occurred to me as I was hearing the question. Um, the example given is normally people bring out the good stuff first, let everybody get drunk, and then bring the cheap stuff out. He's not, the text isn't saying Jesus made it and encouraged everybody to get drunk. It, it's just saying he made the good quality stuff. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and the good quality stuff causes intoxication. Right, so if you drank a lot of it, you would get drunk. Yes, exactly. But you have to drink enough of it. You know, that's the point. You have to drink enough. This was low alcohol content, and that's what it is. It's just, there's just no way to get around. I'm sorry. Now, I sent you that article by, Doc, by Pastor Ken, if you got that, about... Okay, well, read that. Because, you know, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm against drinking alcohol myself, personally. Pastor Ken is against drinking alcohol. But I just can't, you know, I just got to face the facts here that this is what the text is saying. And this is what people did in the first century because particularly they just didn't have good water. And they made this grape juice first. They, 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 made, they made grape juice and it naturally fermented automatically. If you don't, do, if you don't have some sort of pasteurization, pasteurization process, then this grape juice is going to become alcoholic. Now, it's not going to become very strong, but it'll become eventually alcoholic. And so there's nothing wrong with ethyl alcohol per se. It's how it's used. Remember, Jesus says, I mean, Paul says about the deacons, you know, they should not be a user or a drinker of much wine, you know. Why does he say that? Because much of it can make you drunk. And that's the same word that's used here, you know. He's not saying deacons should not be a user of much grape juice. 
That, that, that's the same word. That's the same word. Jesus is not, I mean, Paul is not saying deacon should not be a user of much grape juice. If you're saying that word means grape juice, then Jesus, then Paul would be saying deacon should not be a user of much grape juice. No, it should be not, you shouldn't be a user of a lot of wine because that wine, that oinos. Well, okay, I don't, wor don't worry about the Old Testament yet. Just, I mean, we got to go on, but the point is that we're talking about oinos here. That's the word. And I just explained in Timothy, <clears throat> don't be a user of much oinos. That must mean some sort of alcoholic drink. He wouldn't be forbidding drinking grape juice. Why would he say, hey, deacons should not be drinkers of a lot of grape juice? It's got to be alcoholic. He doesn't want them to drink a lot of alcohol fermented grape juice, and so that's the same word used here. And oinos is always fermented, I'm just saying. Now, now because we have, because alcohol had became such a problem, therefore people want, we'd love, I would love that, I would be great if there was a verse that says, Christians should not drink any alcohol. That'd be fine with me, it'd be great, I'd love it. But I just can't make the text say that, that's all I'm saying, I can't make it. All right, let's stop here for tonight, and we'll pick it up next time. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Mm -hmm. But read that article by Pastor Ken that I sent you about alcohol, okay?